here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. We'll be starting today's episode with our new segment, Books with Hooks, which we're really excited about. In it, super agents Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Literary Agency will be reading the query letters and opening pages you submit for their feedback. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to test run your submissions so that when you get them in front of your dream agents, you'll make the best possible first impression. If you'd like to participate, email your query letter and the first five pages of your novel in one document to theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com. Please redact any information you don't want us to share on the podcast, like your name or the title of your work. Okay, Cece, why don't you kick us off with the query letter for Losing Libby? Dear Carly and Cecilia, 
Losing Libby is a work of literary fiction, approximately 71,000 words in length. Like all my work, it has autobiographical roots. I follow your Twitter, Instagram and podcasts closely as it inspires my perspective. Libby and Margot are an example of strong women living through challenging circumstances with humor and courage. The normality of dysfunction is my baseline for writing stories and changing perspective on the narrative around mental illness. I write to make complex experiences feel more normal, which I hope will change the conversation. Libby and Margot are sisters who share humor and a similar understanding of the world. Libby is likable against all odds and Margot leans into her flaws. The story is a dual POV. The two women take turns telling the story of Libby, Margot in real time and Libby in the past. The story takes place after Libby's suicide. It is meant to offer a warm, funny, intimate and compassionate portrayal of complex mental illness, specifically bipolar disorder. In the end, Libby and Margot are just sisters with a world in common, one that can seem frightening from the outside, but is similar to any other family life. As my mentor JJ Lee taught me, books can save people, and I hope this book makes a difference to someone who needs saving. I also hope it influences how psychiatric medicine is practiced, how we love people when they're ill, and how patients think of themselves. I would compare losing Libby to the tone of Laurie Moore in Birds of America and to the candor and earned trust of Miriam Taves in All My Puny Sorrows. All My Puny Sorrows saved me and I gave Birds of America to my aunt when she was dying of ovarian cancer and I think it helped. My work is published in the spring-summer edition of Exister 2020 and in the fall edition of the Fiddlehead 2020. I was a finalist for the Fiddlehead's C and F competition and a reader at the January 2021 Emerging Writers Reading Series. I completed an extensive mentorship with Shalene Knight and a master's in psychiatry out of Wales. Presently, I study narrative nonfiction with JJ Lee at Simon Fraser University's The Writer's Studio. Other agents have asked for the full manuscript of Libby. I love yoga, cross country, downhill skiing, tennis, running, bar, pilates, horses and cattle, my family and girlfriends, cooking, and most of all, my corgi, Audrey Ray. So she tells me that it's a work of literary fiction. She tells me the the word length. And then she mentions that she follows us on Twitter and Instagram, which which we appreciate. Um, I do think that should be left maybe to the last paragraph. I don't think you need to start with that necessarily. And I have the same note for the rest of the paragraph. So the next sentence, Libby and Margot are an example of strong women living together through challenging circumstances with humor and courage. It's great, but it's it's vague, right? Like you're telling me what the story is, is going to feel like before telling me what the story is about. And you're on then the following sentence, which starts with the normality of dysfunction is my baseline. She's explaining why she's writing this book and what her goal is. And I, I think it's really important for authors to have that in mind. It's in some part of the process. It doesn't have to be in the beginning. It doesn't even have to be until after the book is done necessarily. But I don't think that should be in the query letter and definitely not in the beginning. Query letter should be very salesy. As Carly always says, I think it's a great way to, you know, just catch that meaning. It should be a pitch. It should be straight to the point. And again, second paragraph, I still don't know what the central conflict is. And I need to know that. I know it's a dual POV story. I know that they're tackling the story of Libby. I know that Margot is in real time. And I know that Libby's in the past. 
And I know that Libby commits suicide, which I'm guessing is not a spoiler, right? I'm guessing it's central to the story that I know this right off the bat. But again, I don't know what the conflict is. And I guess I, I have to know that. When you go to the next paragraph, the same thing keeps happening, which is you're sharing the, the emotions of what you hope this book will accomplish and who it will save. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's that's absolutely fantastic that you have that goal. Just maybe not, don't save it for the query letter. Um, and if you have to include that, include one line at the end. That's what I think. The very last paragraph, I'll say that there's one sentence, like other agents have asked for the full MS of Libby. We always want to know that. We always want to know if your if you're full is being considered by other agents. But notice how that sentence is in the middle of her writing accomplishments. Like the previous sentence is all about, you know, studying narrative nonfiction at Simon Fraser University and the writer's studio. And then the next sentence is about loving yoga and cross country. So I would, I would take a moment to, I guess, rewrite this query letter in terms of like the order of things and just removing what your intention is with the book, because that's not, I don't even think it needs to be there. And if it's really important for you to, to include that there, fine, but like one line at the end. That's my take. Kali, what do you think? My notes were really similar. I, I've said this before on the podcast, but I don't like being told how I'm going to feel. <laughs> that puts me on my heels and I just don't like it. So so this stuff about Marco and Libby are an example of strong women living through challenges and that whole paragraph. Yeah, I would, I would definitely probably cut that or trim it down. The thing that I would move to the top is the, in the second paragraph, the story is dual POV. Two women take turns telling the story of Libby, Margo in real time and Libby in the past. The story takes past after Libby's suicide. Side, it means to uh, it is meant to offer warm, funny, intimate, and compassionate portrayal of complex mental illness, specifically bipolar disorder. So I would actually kind of it's kind of the hook. I mean, it's like a loose hook, but I think that's kind of the hook. So I would just like pull that up and plop it at the top underneath of the word count. Things like the next paragraph starts like in the end, Libby and Margot. Like in the end to me is like synopsis language that doesn't belong in a query. So figure out a way to reword that. Um, she talks about JJ Lee as her mentor. I love JJ. Hi, JJ, if you're listening, thank you for all, all the work you do for uh, for the creative writing on the West Coast. Um, we love you, JJ. But yeah, I would say you have JJ's name in a couple places here. So I would just put that, probably take it out of the middle of the, of the query letter and just leave it at the bottom. Or you can say, you know, my mentor JJ Lee is offered to potentially do a blurb in the future or something like that. Just tell us maybe like how your relationship to JJ might be a little bit more useful in the like selling of the book, because this is a sales tool and a sales pitch. And then at the end, we have some comps. So Lori Moore and Miriam Taves, um, so, you know, two books. So I would probably, again, I, I like query, I like comp titles at the top of the query. So I would move that to the top. But yeah, I, I agree with CC. Like, I think we need a, a deconstruct and reconstruct construct of this one. It seems to all be there uh, a little bit scattered and not salesy enough. And as we've said, you know, a, a lot of this material that is extracurricular in the query letter is just stuff you can tell us on the phone when you eventually get an agent on the phone and have the call and, and we get to know you, but um, you know, we don't get to that point unless we get excited about your book and read your manuscript. So anything that doesn't actually sell the book in real time, I would cut. Wonderful. And a bit of advice that I want to add, Joe, there's tools that I give my creative writing students when it comes to pitching, when it comes time to finding that central conflict in your piece and how to put that in a in a query and there's two particular tools that I recommend to them so one of them is called the YA writers toolbox now don't be fooled it's not just for YA writers it's a wonderful pitch generator you can choose various options like a character journey high stakes romance or world building or world setting it's easy to use it asks a series of questions and you plug in a word or two and the generator gives you several pitch 
searches. And then Graham Shimon also has a really great tool for generating log lines. It's called the Kilogator, K-I-L-L-O-G-A-T-O-R. It's a simpler tool to use than the toolbox, but it's also really, really valuable in helping you find what those central conflicts are and how to put them in like a pitchy sort of way. Okay, Cece, would you like to dive into the opening pages for us? So, you know, right off the bat, I can tell, even if I hadn't read the query letter, this is a literary novel, right? Which means that it's not going to be plot heavy. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I love literary novels. I will say that right now it seems to be written like a literary novel, but without the intensity of a literary novel in the relationships. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We start off learning all about Rob. I, I'm confused because I thought we were going to explore the relationship between Margot and Libby. But then, okay, maybe there's a reason. I'm into it. And then there's a shift to being at the lake house with totally different people. So again, doesn't seem to be a plot heavy book. So I wouldn't recommend all these different focuses in the first five pages. The thing with literary novels is that the writing tends to hook you and the intensity of the emotion behind that writing. And in order to accomplish that, you typically need to pick one relationship that the main character, especially if this is going to be in the first person, right? I, 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 but one relationship that the main character is fixated on, right? So that we can also be fixated on that. So that intensity can can touch the reader and we can become just as invested as the main character is. And I thought that was going to be Rob, but then it shifted both a little bit to herself and then to Margot and her, and her brothers and to Ram. So I guess my question is, is that intentional? Um, and if it is, maybe it makes sense if you continue reading. But my initial sense, having only read five pages, is perhaps ask yourself this. How are you hooking the reader? What is the story and, and whose story, right? Like, do you want the reader to be invested in? Typically, it's not enough to just be the main character. It has to be the main character in relation to someone else. And I guess I think pick one person because right now we don't quite have that. In terms of like more minor notes, I noticed that Rob wore big wool sweaters is the first line, which I like. I'm already like, oh, who's Rob? Why is he wearing? Why is he important? But then we don't hear Rob's name again in, you know, as in the, the narrator referring to him as Rob. It's all he, he, he until like two pages later. And I guess I'm wondering, is that intentional? It's just a lot of he sentences. He, 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 this, he, that. She mentions the 60s drawl and then mentions the 60s in the next paragraph. I would just contextualize something that happened in the 60s to make it less repetitive. There seems to be a lot of looking back, which great. For example, um, page four, I got the feeling that he spent a lot of time on the couch. I do, I do too. So she's looking back because this is now present tense. But usually when we look back, especially in literary fiction, we color that with emotion because it's the intensity of, of the emotion that propels the story forward. It's typically not the plot. So I would revise this with that in mind, but um, on a line editing level. Um, I think that's, that would be my my minor minor note, if that makes sense. And I will also say that the sentence, the only way to die was to cut everything you were attached to is so powerful because by explaining how to die, she's defining living, living being, being connected to things, right? And that's so powerful, so so beautiful. The emotion is, is absolutely there. Kali, what did you think? Yeah, I echo a lot of the same sentiments. I felt like inherently there were some info dumps and we talk about that a lot, usually more with commercial fiction. So I, I don't usually see it as much with literary fiction. So I think maybe either we're not starting this in the right 
spot again who's Rob and how much are they going to have a big piece of the book in terms of what the whole picture is going to be I was also a little bit confused about Rob versus Ram I didn't understand why the characters names were so close together I almost thought like did the author mean to write Rob when they wrote Ram like I was just a little confused on on uh, the character stuff there's a couple paragraphs that I thought were really beautiful I mean I liked the paragraph I didn't often show up for office hours when I did I was meek I went to a five years later like a cow to trough when I was nearly dead. It was after hospitalization and the winter was so long and flat. I was thinking about God. Maybe it was the way the nurses talked to me. And then they just kind of, you know, just a, a beautiful paragraph. I really liked that one. And the other paragraph I really liked was we studied all the ec- economists, it seemed, but it was hard to understand most of the material, the written stuff. He was more off book anyway. That's where you got to the good stuff. He was about teaching life you know, that kind of stuff. I like that. So, you know, there was a couple um, sections that I connected to. Ultimately, for me to connect with literary fiction, I do think we have to be pulled into the moment. And like, I still look for plot, I guess, in my literary fiction. So I was just kind of waiting to see, you know, where where the book was going to start and where it was really going to take off. And and yeah, and I agree, like, if we're, if we're going to focus in the pitch letter on the sister relationship, I really felt like we should probably start the book with the sister relationship. Relationship. I think this for me felt a little bit of a disconnect between the query letter and the sample pages in terms of what we were trying to accomplish. So to me, it just felt like we're just still in the beginning stages of a literary author figuring out who they're going to be and what they want to say. And, and you know, I, I think the writing skills are all there, but just in a commercial sense, in terms of agents trying to sign up a project and sell a project, I just felt like we were still a couple steps away from that. Yeah. But in terms of the literary writing, um, it really was lovely. There were a whole bunch of things as well that I highlighted sentences that I really loved as well. So yeah, like you say, the writing's there. It's just a case of perhaps positioning the story differently. Okay, awesome. Carly, would you like to kick us off with the next query letter? Dear Carly and Cecilia, I know this isn't something you would usually represent, but I'd love to get your feedback. God Wants Me, and then in Strikeout, To Be Good and Happy, is a Christian non-fiction book for women ages 20 to 60 that sets women free from the unrealistic expectations, propelling them towards hopelessness, points them to the heart of God, and offers solutions to help them endure the trials they face. With an anticipated manuscript length of 45,000 words, God Wants Me recenters Christian women's expectations and hearts, not on avoiding pain and troubling circumstances, but on abiding in the unwavering truth of the gospel through the pain and troubles that come. When we put our hope in Christ, the tension and turmoil we experience can become a catalyst for the cultivation of a deeper, steadfast faith that sustains and enables us to persevere through any circumstance, even the unthinkable. The problem is that the faulty, feel-good Christian messages plastered all over social media and magnified in culture are feeding Christian women a faith built on emotions and entitled expectations that won't sustain them. In fact, they're sinking them. I know because they almost sank me. I was living life as a good Bible study girl, unknowingly trying to perform my way into God's heart, living transactional, not trust-filled. Despite having what I thought was a firm foundation of faith, a decade ago, my life unraveled. A series of losses cascaded into my life as I became a military spouse and buried my child. During my darkest moments, well-meaning half-truths like God has good plans for you fueled the despair in my heart. When my world collapsed, shallow, twisted truths and inspirational quotes failed to sustain me. 
My life began to turn around when I started to understand the hard but necessary truth kept from me. Suffering is as scriptural as salvation. Studying scripture, drawing near to God and learning from therapists and Christian mentors, lies were undone and I cultivated a faith that no longer wavers with shifting emotions and circumstances. Reconciling my expectations with the reality of God's promises about suffering and salvation and the reality of my circumstances were how I returned to hope when I'd lost it and how I found myself reassembled after being torn apart. As a bereaved mother and military spouse, I've learned how to endure through the hard times scripture promises and I'm passionate about helping other women do the same. Now more than ever in a culture exhausted from the discomforts, unknowns and losses of pandemic life, women need this book. God Wants Me will help them embrace the sustaining truth of scripture right where they are and keep their hearts from sinking as they release uncover God's unchanging loving heart for them. Blessings, Kristen. So I thought firstly I was being pitched a prescriptive book because it says, okay, it's a Christian nonfiction book for women ages 20 to 60. So it's telling us like, who's the market, what it's about. So right away, my kind of agent red flag was like, okay, where's the platform? Why are you qualified to write this? Where's the gap in the market? Where are the comps? What's the hook? Um, You know, what's authoritative about this? So in terms of pitching nonfiction, that is kind of inherently needed to be built into this. And then we kind of start, it started evolving a little bit more into memoir and, you know, the section where the author's talking about the losses that they've had in their life, a series of losses cascaded to my life as I became a military spouse and buried my child during my darkest moments, you know, so we're, we're talking about, you know, the personal revelations that have kind of led this person to write this book. So to me, I would actually think about reframing this project entirely away from prescriptive and into a memoir. It's also quite short. So we have, um, a projected length of 45,000 words. So I would say, you know, write a 70,000 word memoir. (laughs) And through the teachings, obviously, there's a huge emphasis on religion and Christianity through this. So I would say instead of coming at this in terms of trying to teach other people, I would use a memoir to kind of through the storytelling, tell your story, because this is somebody who we talk about, you know, platform is your platform, you know, in publishing. And so if this person isn't like a pastor or something like that, to have a more of like authoritative connection to the subject matter. I'm just not sure why a publisher would pick up this type of prescriptive book over somebody who is more of an authoritative figure in the religious community. So those are kind of my main notes. Awesome. Cece, what did you think? I agree with everything Carly said. You know, when I read this, I was like, oh, I really like the title. I like titles with strike through. I always think they're clever. And then the first paragraph tells me what the book is going to do before telling me what the book is about. I was also confused. I knew it was a, I knew it was nonfiction. I knew the category, but I didn't know the genre. And I still don't after having read the entire query letter. This happens a lot, I think, when people have a story inside them that's urgent and and meaningful. You know, having read a little bit about what the author went through, I get it. I get why she has the story inside her. The problem, though, is that in order to have that in the on the pages, it's important to stick to the actual story itself and not so much your mission. The second paragraph does the same thing. It You're telling me why the, what the book does recenters Christians, women's expectations without telling me what it's about. No one really picks up a book in my experience unless they know what the book is about. I think that's the main thing that someone 
someone um, that leads someone to a book. Again, third paragraph does the same thing. She's telling me why we need this book, um, the problematic culture of toxic positivity and transactional faith. I absolutely see the the merit in that. I think it's so obvious, right? Like absolutely, but I don't understand what what the book is covering. And and so that's that's really important. I also have to say that on paragraph six, she mentions that, you know, sort of, I guess the epiphany was that suffering is as scriptural as salvation. I will say that, isn't this obvious? Like the Bible is all about suffering. Like Christ literally got crucified to, to I guess, forgive mankind for their sins. I, I don't, I guess my question is, we do live in a society where just comfort is taught to be avoided at all costs, right? And toxic positivity is absolutely a thing, but I don't quite see how that is an epiphany that suffering is is as scriptural as salvation because it's it's in scripture i think maybe i'm reading it wrong i don't know and then the last paragraph you know what i wrote when i read it in my notes was that the, the my issue with the query letter is that this could be a memoir this could be a translation into plain english of scriptures against modern world examples it could be essays it could literally be anything and i don't know and i and I kind of want to know because, again, it seems like it's an urgent story that the author has to share. So when Carly mentioned, yeah, make this a memoir, that makes total sense because then it's all about your feelings and your emotions and your journey versus what you're going to accomplish with it, if that makes any sense. So Carly, what did you think of the opening pages? Um, so I kind of, again, rolling right from the query into the pages, you you set up a certain expectation for what you think you're going to read. And so as an agent, I don't work necessarily in what we, we call like inspirational marketing market is are the Christian publishers. And then we call in the inspirational market, they call non-religious publishers, the secular market. Just so you know, so I'll probably use those terms. So I was thinking, okay, is as an agent, is this for the secular market or is this for the inspirational market? And we have to choose one or the other and knowing the inspirational market to a certain extent, um, I haven't sold any books to them, but every once in a while, I'll pick up a book from Zondervan is one of them. Anyway, there's like three publishers. So every once in a while, I'll pick them up because they do the, um, the Magnolia books like Joanna Gaines and Chip Gaines have been published through the religious imprints and HGTV stars will actually publish their memoirs through these religious imprints because just some of them happen to be religious. So anyway, so any of these memoirs I picked up that have religious content have been published through these publishers. So I have a little bit of an understanding of how much religious content needs to be in an inspirational book versus what the secular market needs, which is could be touched on religion, but not entirely religion. So as an agent, I'm trying to think like, what market is this for? Inspirational market or the secular? market. So as somebody who works primarily in the secular market, I was trying to look for some things that I thought were going to jump out to me personally. And I was looking for the stuff about those Christian messages pastored all over social media and magnifying culture, feeding Christian women a faith built on emotions and entitled expectations. So this kind of like the toxic positivity and like what's happening with the modern woman, what they're seeing online and like Instagram mold me culture and like all these things. Like I just thought we would maybe go there and that's kind of where I wanted to go. So I was kind of like hoping we were going to go there, but ultimately I felt felt like it was leaning so heavy into Christianity that I couldn't see a through line for secular publishing. So that's kind of where I ended off is that, you know, this author, I think, just has to decide where they want to be published and what the book is and who it's for. And if it wants to be published in a secular market, then I think that there has to be a little bit less of an emphasis on religion itself and more the storytelling and how religion is applied to the story itself. But if it wants to be published by an inspirational publisher, then you can lean a little bit more into the religion element. So, you know, that's my advice. I think just knowing some of the agents that that, uh, that work in the inspirational market would just be your best bet finding those ones. Cece, what did you think? So I'm going to assume this is a memoir for the purposes of, of this 
this critique because I don't know what it is and my my opinion would change depending on what the what, what genre it is. So if it is a memoir, I would say that right from the first paragraph, remember this. You, the author, you're the protagonist of the story. Your main job here is to make the reader be invested in your emotions and your journey. And the best way to do that is to be the opposite of generic. Now, what do I mean by that? When I was introduced to God as a little girl, I was also a little girl. Like we, we all, we all in this podcast were, right? So insert a few sharp visuals or or other sharp specific details here. So for example, when I was a little girl wearing plum colored Mary Janes and you know, ruffled dresses, um, or a little girl who loved a horseback ride, or a little girl who, and then the second thing with, you know, because the first paragraph we hear, when I met Jesus as a teenager, again, teenager who, I don't know, loved Taylor Swift and mint chocolate chip, like, remember that these small things make all the difference, including setting, like, where are we? I have no idea where we are in, I'm assuming the US, but maybe not, like, um, practically frolicking off into the sunset, praising the Lord. This is all first paragraph. How about you say practically frolicking off into the sunset, into the Arizona sunset, for example? Like it's a quick way to insert the location. It's really important that you immerse me in scene. I've mentioned this before with memoirs. It's scenes, secret, and shame. It's you need those three things to to write a successful memoir, in my opinion. You know, the second paragraph, I read the first line and my heart just went like I could. They felt like this crushing, it's, it's again, what she went through, like the grief, it's burying your one month old baby like with that fresh newborn smell. Like that's, it made my heart like feel so much for her. And then as I kept on reading, you know, she told me that this book is about something more. And I was like, okay, what? And then she said, you know, I want to call out the problem beneath the pain. And I was like, okay, so what is the problem beneath the pain? And then with every line, I kept asking the same question. What is the something more? We know what the something more did. It prolonged her pain. Beautiful and for what the something more is, that it's disguised like warm sunshine, meaning it feels good at first, but not for too long. Um, great, great matter, um, great simile, I should say. But what is it? What is the something more? And then again, next line, same thing. Now we know what the something more does. It makes you feel good at first, right? With the, with the metaphor, but I have no idea what the something more is. And the cultural commentary that was, that was, woven into this was interesting. There's on page four, the very last line, you know, and this good looks like an imagined immunity to hardship and pain. We live in a culture that can't face or endure pain. We try to fix, hide, avoid, numb to escape it. Like that is very interesting cultural commentary. I guess I'm just wondering if this is not a memoir, then then maybe just allow that to be woven into a story. And we don't have a story yet because we don't have a main character with a conflict and, and, you know, secondary characters and settings and, you know, all the things that go into a story, um, which is essential in a memoir, as essential as it is in a novel. That's my note, because with, with every page that I read, with every paragraph that I read, I, I kept wondering, like, what, what is it? And I n- didn't get the answer. The, the line, this book is about something more, it was not answered. I still don't know what it's about. For a moment, I thought that it was going to be answered in the very last paragraph in page four, when it said that for some, suffering isn't consider- considered to be a part of life with Jesus or a path to hope. But there wasn't any, any like, secret sauce that I could see after that. And I would just echo what I said about the query letter. I, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think the Bible is filled with, with messages about how suffering is important in this life, you know, as, as a trial and tri- tribulation. There's there's a lot of, of scripture that talks about how, I don't know, the meek shall inherit the earth that God makes his chosen few go through to to understand the nature of suffering. So I I think that you've, you, you, the author, I'm talking to the author now, I think that you're definitely onto something with the culture of toxic positivity. I just don't quite 
know that you've managed to put that in the page. And my guess, if I had to guess, is that you're feeling it so much and you know your story so well, because after all, it's your story, that you're not remembering to translate it to the reader. One thing I always say with memoirs is if you read someone's journal, like if I were to like break into someone's room and steal their diary and read it, it probably wouldn't like make sense to me. I would know how they're feeling, but like there would probably be a whole bunch of references to like he and she and they that I would not know who this person is talking about because in a journal, you're writing it for yourself. You don't actually care if it makes sense because it's not a story that's going to be read by others. And with memoirs, I see this all the time. We end up almost writing journals because we think that, oh, it's my story. I know it so well. I'm the perfect person to write it. But you still have to follow the rules of the fiction in order for it to make sense. Excellent advice, Cece. Thank you. Right. So we're moving on to our last submission. Dear Carly and Cecilia. My YA novel, Spells for Locus, is a 73,500-word contemporary story with magical realism elements. The novel is reminiscent of Dear Heartbreak and I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. Heartbreak, revenge, and magic never end well. 18-year-old Maya suppressed her psychic and artistic abilities to become the perfect Latinx daughter. But when she ignored her premonition of her boyfriend's betrayal at the senior prom with her best friend, the secret plans she had for her future are crushed. Devastated and embarrassed, Maya skips school and finds a job at Botanica Serena run by Curanderas. From then, she learns her psychic abilities are not demonic, as her Catholic grandma said. She uses her newfound knowledge, Curanderismo, to get her boyfriend back by concocting a love potion, which backfires. Emilio is in love with Maya's mother and her nana's 75-year-old boyfriend, obsesses over Maya. Only the Grand Curandera can help Maya if she surrenders to the indigenous rituals. To attain the antidote, she must confront her past relationships, which leads her on a journey of self-discovery and empowerment. Once the antidote is made, she has 48 hours to convince her unknowing victims to drink the remedy or remain spellbound. The University of Nevada, Reno and Harvard College magazine Palabritas published my short stories in 2017-2018. I've received fellowships to writing workshops by A Room of Her Own, Macondo Writers, and Mentorship from Las Musas, a collective of Latinx picture book, middle grade, and YA authors. I'm a member of SCBWI and a co-founder of Hashtag Latinx Pitch. Regards, Writer X. Carly? Would you like to discuss the query letter? I really thought it was great. I mean, I don't work in, a, as, I, as I said before, a lot of YA, but in terms of a really great query letter, I thought it checked all the boxes. The word count was, you know, right in line with industry expectations. The comps were great. There was a, a really wonderful reception to I'm not your perfect Mexican daughter. So I, that's a wonderful comp. Only thing I think I had a note about was I wasn't clear where this was set. Because I know that they say that the grandmother is from Oaxaca, but I didn't know where the uh, where Maya lives like that was one thing I was just not super clear about like if she has to go to Oaxaca like is she traveling to get there or you know all of that sort of thing but other than that I thought it was a really well done query um and I think you're going to get a lot of requests it was great awesome feedback there Cece yeah I also really liked this one I guess I had to give minor notes since we're reading this anyway the last sentence of the first paragraph heartbreak revenge and magic never end well I would change that to the combination of heartbreak magic and revenge meaning putting the magic before the revenge never ends well just because I mean think about it like you're probably using the magic to get revenge right I think so 
just a very small thing. And then the second paragraph, you know, again, very last line, the secret plans she had for her future are crushed. But like, I don't know what the secret plans are. And I feel like I should, unless it's like a spoiler. I guess I, I would like to know unless it's a spoiler, just because it would make me even more invested. I love that she skipped school to, to go to the place where the curanderas are. I love that. That's great. I guess, you know, when the spell backfires, I would very minor tweak, change the verb tense in the last sentence of the third paragraph to which backfires, right? Like that's, we learned about that in the previous sentence. And then thanks to Maya's meddling, Emilio is now in love with Maya's mother and her, and her Nana's 75-year-old boyfriend obsesses over Maya, um, just so that we can understand that that was the cause and effect. It wasn't super clear to me. Although, you know what? It was. It's just very minor note. And then, yeah, I understand what the central conflict is. I understand what's at stake because, you know, obviously you, you have to undo that spell. I understand the atmosphere of the novel just based on this query letter. So, and it's short, not too short. I mean, I mean, it's not like it doesn't go on and on. So it's, it really is quite an accomplishment that you managed to convey so much. But yes, I, I had not caught that, but Carly is right. The setting, we, we should also have the setting. And I feel like that's a really easy fix. So I also loved this so much. Carly, do you want to dive into the opening pages? I don't even, I'm trying to scroll through because I always make notes and I'm literally seeing no notes. <laughs> so I actually don't have any, any feedback, which means I was very immersed in the world. There was nothing that kind of took me out of the moment that said like, oh, I have to make a note here. I was just kind of wondering, you know, what was going to happen. And, you know, with the, the boyfriend showing up and hanging out with his old high school buddies instead of hanging out with his girlfriend, like I just had all of those like throwback feelings to high school and that like nostalgia way because I'm 33. So, so I just, uh, you know, as somebody dipping into a YA book and a YA world, um, it gave me all the feels and I, I thought it was all there, right? There's the conflict, the immediate conflict, right? Between the, the girl and her boyfriend, there's the confrontation with her father, the, or the parents not being around. So the grandma had to kind of step in the, you know, booked a hotel room with her credit card. Like there's so much where like, she's, you know, dropping all these little red herrings to be like, there's a lot coming and I'm on this ride for it. So, uh, so I really loved it. I thought it was super well done. You did a great job. Wonderful. Cece, what were your notes on the opening pages? I just want to say that the first line is the best line ever. I am not a bruja, no matter what Nana says. Like, that's just good. I'm like, okay, please tell me more. Yeah. I, again, very well-written. It's just great. I know exactly what the story is going to feel like, not just what it's going to be about. That is a major accomplishment. If I had to give you some like really specific feedback. Oh, I had a question actually, but it's not a problem that I don't know. But like, wouldn't she be worried that her dad would see the charge for a hotel room? Feels like something a teenager will be worried about, but maybe that's explained later and that's fine. Like it's okay to have for the reader to be asking I, a few I felt like it was like she was willing to get caught almost. Like she wants ah. the attention from her dad. So like if her dad did find out, it was like almost a bait for his attention. But that I know what you mean. Sense. Like I No, but that worried. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, no, no. That makes sense though. Like it's, so actually it's, it's, it's good that we don't know because we're not only are we wondering, but now like we each have a different theory. So yeah, I don't know. I guess if I had to give you a note, it would be, okay, so she has these visions, right? Like we keep seeing like an image in Wusha's past, like a fleeing raven. I want to know more about these visions because to me, they're the most interesting part about the book. And it's all really interesting. So that's saying a lot. Like how often do they happen? What are her feelings about these visions? I know that she has to keep them hidden from Nana. Um, but I guess if they happen all the time, kind of like you know, someone who always has migraines or someone who always has, like, who's always imagining things, um, then I think I want to know. I think I want 
to have that information woven into the story with emotion. Um, something like, would she be thinking about them in the car ride? I just want to understand a little bit more how she copes with that. Because I think that not only is it essential to the really cool hook, which is the fact that she has powers, but also it's essential for us to understand what kind of person she is, right? Like, is she is she fighting it? Is she secretly indulging in it? Okay, so that brings us to the end of our critiques. Thank you so much to everybody who submitted their work. For the rest of you who are building up the courage to do so, you've now listened to enough that you know what, what to expect. We look forward to seeing your submissions. We just want to thank all the writers who send us their work. Um, we're so humbled and honored by the opportunity to read and critique your work. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And and please keep sending your work because we have a lot of fun um, connecting with you. And please connect with us on social media as well. Yes. And if you're enjoying the segment, please rate us on uh, Apple Podcasts. The ratings are quite important. So if you could just pop us a rating there, we'd appreciate it. And definitely follow us on social media. Let us know what you're thinking and give us any suggestions if you have them. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Shit No One Tells You What Writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. 
Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Just a reminder of a few things that we've got coming up. Carly's teaching a session called How to Write a Non-Fiction Proposal That Sells. That's on the 29th of April at 8pm Eastern Standard Time on Zoom. Go to her Instagram page for the link in the bio to register. I've got a course coming up on the 7th of April from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time called Taking Your Writing to the Next Level. So if you have a first draft of a novel that you are now beginning to revise, this is the course for you. I give you a checklist of all the things you should be looking for, all the things that will help elevate your writing and help capture an agent's attention. Go to my website, biancamaray.com to register there. And if you're in a different time zone, don't worry, the course will be recorded and you will still have access to me in terms of questions and I'll be critiquing the first five pages of whatever it is you want to send me. Also, CC will be offering one-on-one -on -one meetings and critique services via Manuscript Academy, which is a year-round online writers' conference. You can find more details at manuscriptacademy.com forward slash Cecilia Dash Lira. And now we move on to the guest segment of today's podcast. Our guest today has novels that have appeared in the number one spot on the New York Times bestseller list and have captured readers' hearts around the globe with translations in more than 20 languages in 30 countries. Her recent novel, The Apple Orchard, is currently being made into a film and The Lakeshore Chronicles has been optioned for adaptation into a series. It's my pleasure to welcome... Susan Wiggs. Susan, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you as a guest today. Thanks for taking the time out. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really fun to talk to other writers. Right. And not just our imaginary friends all the time, which is what we tend to do. Actually, you're probably the first nonfiction character I've spoken with all day. I'm deep in um, uh, finishing up a book. So this is a great break. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I I'm probably won't be as exciting or interesting as your characters because, <laughs> you know, this is the world of fiction writing. We create characters that are so much more interesting than anyone we know. But I will take the, the break and I appreciate the time. So something I'd really like to chat with you today, uh, Susan, is longevity in publishing and the lessons that can be learned from that. Because here's the thing, before I published, I naively thought that the hardest thing in publishing would be to publish your first book. And I thought, okay, once you've done that, you've got your foot in the door. And for the rest of your life, you can do this thing you love, which is writing and publishing books. And then, you know, I learned the hard way that if you don't pretty much knock it out of the park immediately in terms of excellent sales, you know, your career, it almost becomes like a, a, a bad 
kind of romance where someone starts ghosting you and and then and then you realize you're heading you're heading for a breakup you know so your first book published in 1986 I know I know I'm old (laughs) actually I sold it in 86 and it came out in 87 Right. So, I mean, you sold it 35 years ago and you're not only still standing, but you're writing number one New York Times best-selling books. Your latest novel that came out July of last year, The Lost and Found Bookshop, was a huge hit as well. So could you take us through, you know, the whole evolution of your career and the lessons that you've learned along the way in terms of still being relevant and still being able to do this thing you love? Well, we can try. And and I love what you said earlier, where you assumed as I did, as any aspiring or emerging writer would, sell that first book and we'll be on track for this writing career. And and it does work that way for certain authors who, um, like you said, they knock it out of the park right out of the gate. But for most of them, myself and, you know, most of the writers that I know, you build your career on a body of work and it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And so and there will be ups and downs. There will be bumps along the way. I think I've been around so long that pretty much everything that could happen to a writer in publishing has happened to me. I've had, you know, I've um, lost and found editors and had lines open and close um, imprints and things like that. And I've had abject failures in terms of sales. And I've had amazing, um, you know, boosts in terms of sales and everything in between. And so I think that it's a combination of, first of all, mastering your craft. And I say mastering it, but there's always something that you can learn. It's like playing a, a round of golf. You just want to get better. You'll never be perfect. And so, you know, stay on top of your craft and make good strategic business decisions And also keep your promises and be, you know, that dependable writer who makes her deadlines and delivers the goods every time. And I think you need that combination of being really, really inspired by your material that you're writing. And you also mentioned the word relevance, which I think is a key term because I think probably the reason that I've managed to stay relevant, regardless of what I've been writing, because I was writing um, historical romances at first, and then I sort of morphed into writing contemporary stories. And now it's more general fiction. It's very commercial stuff that I write, but I would say it's general fiction. And it almost always features a woman as the main character. She's, um, you know, facing some problem that any woman that I know that I that I am could be facing in all kinds of different contexts. And so I guess trying to stay hooked into that because I'm passionate about it and keep your energy and your passion high. And and that helps too. It's not going to solve every problem that comes up in publishing. You know, the sales numbers mostly happen through no fault that the, of the authors, you know, you wrote the best book you could 
and you know your literary agent and your editor did their the best job that they could and sometimes things still don't line up behind that particular book and my only defense is that I'm writing the next book that's the only way I can um, move ahead and the other thing that I've learned and emerging writers should embrace this too is that no material that you write is ever wasted if you spent your time and your energy and your passion, you know, nine months, a year, two years, five years writing this book, and it doesn't live up to, a, you know, the, the sales potential that you're hoping for, that your publisher is hoping for, it doesn't necessarily mean that that book was a failure. Um, and I just have like in my email queue right now, I have a, a great example of that. I wrote um, back in 1999, I published a historical romance, a very passionate, you know, horny book called The Charm School. <laughs> and it was about a kind of a very shy, but very smart woman who signs on to a sea captain's ship to be the translator as it's going to sail to Brazil. And she has subsequent adventures. And it was very well received by readers 20 something years ago, but it, you know, it, it had its day in the sun and then it sort of was retired and, you know, the sales have just been very minimal. And suddenly something through no fault of my own happened called Bridgerton. Oh, <laughs> so Bridgerton on Netflix has kind of taken the world by storm. People want these sexy, horny historical romances and so the publisher of that book, Mira Books, which, you know, has offices in Toronto, where you are, decided that they're going to re-release that book and its companion volumes, because I wrote some other books in that series called the Calhoun Chronicles. And suddenly they're going to be republished with lavish, gorgeous artwork, and they're going to go out in new clothes and um, have another round of, of sales. And so nothing is ever wasted is what I wanted to, the point that I'm making. So if you're disappointed in the way something that you published or tried to publish performed, just know that nobody has a crystal ball. It might come back in another form. It might have a revival of some sort through some random circumstance like that. And something you said there made me think as well about two things. One is that the Queen's Gambit suddenly made the New York Times bestseller list. How many years? Example. After being I'm published. sad that the author is not with us, but um, you're right. You're right. And I did buy that book. I, I started reading it. I haven't finished reading it, but um, I was so curious about the source material for such a fantastic, amazing production. I loved it. I just finished reading it and it was so close. I can't believe how close they kept to that novel. And that really, the, the, yeah, it was super, super close. And uh, there were just like a few things that they changed, but otherwise, you know, they captured her the way it was written. It was written very cinematic as well. So that's probably what, what lent itself to it, to it as well. And, you know, you see now that books that came out a while ago are suddenly getting back onto the bestseller list because of the book talkers who are book readers on TikTok who are crying. I, I just read about that in, um, in the New York Times. Now people not only want to read the books and share the books, they share their reaction to the book in real time. And it's kind of fascinating to me. 
Right. And I'm just like, I need to find these people, man. I need to yes. find them and make them read my books and make them cry so that, you know, it's on these videos. So, you know, who knows how, how these things uh, change. But going back to a few things that you said in the beginning. So you said you need to master your craft. So in terms of emerging writers, what does that entail for you? Does that entail sitting down and writing every single day? Does it mean reading books on writing? Does it mean taking writing courses? Does it mean revisions? What does that mean to you? All of the above. Everything that you just listed, I hope that your listeners will kind of jot all of those steps down. And I would say show up. I, I know that it's not realistic for new writers to, to write every single day. When I first started writing, I was a school teacher and there were days that I didn't get to the page. There were very few though. I mean, I, I really, really tried to be consistent, uh, whether it was nine o'clock at night when I would finally sit down or the weekends or something like that, but try to show up for your work every day and tell yourself, you know, people show up to jobs that they hate every day. And if you're passionate and you love to write, go ahead and show up for your story every day and try to be consistent. But in terms of craft, as you really want to study it by reading, you study it by stretching yourself. I'm always listening to writing podcasts. I'm looking at my mentors and teachers, which are all my, you know, hands-on writing books by just such an array of, I think everybody probably has that shelf of their, how to write a novel book. And I always go back even now, you know, I've done it, what, 50, 60 times. That's how many books I've written, but I always feel new. And I always feel uncertain when I'm taking those first shaky steps. And for me, it's always, how do I engage myself in the book that is going to engage the reader? And a lot of times I I read other novels as well. And I think that book just really, really moved me. And so what was it that the author was doing and how did she elicit those feelings and how can I do it? Um, there was a saying, and I think it's attributed to Charles Dickens, who said, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. And so really put your heart on paper and don't worry about somebody who knows you who might one day read that book and say, how dare you, or that's way too personal. You have to really kind of bear your soul. And there's not really an alternative to that. And so if you're not going to be comfortable with doing that, it might turn out to be quite a struggle to write a really deeply moving, emotionally authentic seeming novel. And so I also try to develop my own vocabulary and my own skills. I study other languages and, you know, I approach it kind of almost academically, you know, what can I learn from this? And I'm not afraid to do that. And another thing I do, I work really closely with my agent and my editor, and I have some really, really close writer friends that I like to trade material with and swapping material with other writers that you like and trust and admire is pretty invaluable because only another writer is going to get what you're trying to do. It's great to give your material to a friend or a relative, but they're not going to see it through the eyes of a writer. Something else you said was that you need to make good business decisions. 
Now, for emerging writers out there who have not yet started to think about their writing career as a business, have you got some pieces of advice for them early on? Because I know that when you are querying and all you want is an agent, the first person who says they will represent you, you almost want to throw your arms around them and sob hysterically and go, thank you, thank you. Yes, absolutely. But that may not be the right person for you, you know, in terms. So so what kind of advice do you have in terms of making those good business decisions? It's really hard to find that you know, that perfect partner in an agent. But number one, the first good business decision you'll make for your writing career is going to be to find a literary agent, the right literary agent, not just anyone. I want to make sure, and probably your listeners know this, but I'm just going to reiterate, never go with somebody who wants to charge you a fee just to read your book or to a processing fee. They characterize them in many different ways, but the way that a literary agent earns his or her keep is a commission on the sales of your book. And that's, that's it. There, there could be some may, you know, some administration fees or something that is that you agree upon that are reasonable, but the ones who say, I'm going to make this a bestseller, just send me $2,500 and I'll edit it for you probably, you know, run the other way. And there are legitimate editorial services as well, where you can pay a freelance editor to work on your material, but make sure that that's somebody who is vetted and comes with references. um, If you decide to do, to go that route, because the right agent will set you up with a publisher and an editor, and then you do have an editor that you don't have to pay. You know, it doesn't work that way. So the first good decision is to try to find the best agent you can. But the other thing is, it's not a marriage. If it's not working, just make a cold-blooded business decision that you're going to move on. And I think a lot of us are intimidated by having to take that step. You know, it's kind of a, it's an admission, oh, that didn't work out out. Um, but no, just just be businesslike about it and know that it happens every day in publishing. And so, yeah, it, but it can be really, really challenging because uh, if you think about what an agent does all day, every day, she generally doesn't go around looking for new clients. And so, you know, the submission that you've made to her or to him is not going to be the top on her priority list. And so I would just say, you know, multiple submit your material to some very, very curated, selected people. You know, you can look them up online, you can read up on them, you can see what kind of material they seem to prefer and make sure that it's a good match and have a lot of conversations like that and find somebody who really, you know, I don't want to be a little, you know, too Pollyanna, you know, but somebody who has your back and is almost as passionate about your material as you are, and also seems to be well connected and runs a good business herself. There's always um, apocryphal stories or maybe real stories about agents who don't manage their, you know, especially single office agents who don't work for a big agency, having trouble with their finances and not managing their books properly. And so you kind of have to um, look for 
the one who appears to really have a pretty good client list and a pretty good track record and just know that you're going to have to make your way with them as well. You know, you won't be their A number one client right out of the gate, but you can grow into that role with the right agent and she'll help you. And the other good business decisions are to not to be impulsive with your finances because a royalty check is not a paycheck. You know, a paycheck is the wage that you earn. A royalty check are the revenues from your small business that you're running and they work in different ways. So make sure that you do have a good sort of bookkeeping team as well to keep you very realistic about your finances as well. I think that I was um, I was a teacher. I mentioned before I didn't um, go to full time writing until I think my fifth or sixth book, and I made sure that the revenues from my books were able to sustain me and my family. And so I was I tried not to be impulsive about that. Yeah, I think you can't you can't just uh, sell one book and go. That's it. I'm giving up my day job, uh, because you know you look at the advance and you go, wow, this is a decent amount of money, but you don't realize that that money is paid in four or five segments over the space of perhaps three years because you pay a you know they pay a portion upon signing and then a portion when they're happy that you've handed in a good manuscript and then when the novel comes out and then perhaps when the paperback comes out so you know whatever you see as this advance when you realize it's being paid over four years it's not that great an income so yeah I agree with you there Susan so in terms of you've changed genres in your career? Was it that each time was it that you just kind of got bored with the genre you were writing? Or was it a very tactical move in terms of these books no longer seem to be selling? And this is now where, you know, people see these are genres that people seem to be enjoying? Or how did you approach those decisions? They were pretty calculated, I have to say, I was writing with quite a bit of success. I was writing some historical romances and they were doing rather well back in the nineties, but I, I, I definitely felt myself drawn creatively to more contemporary stories that had a broader canvas. They weren't necessarily this, um, you know, sexy, adventurous couple, you know, gallivanting off on adventures. I was sort of thinking about women of today and their problems and their families and all the loves that fill a woman's life. And so I was drawn, I felt myself creatively being pulled in that direction. And I was also seeing a shift toward these kind of books. And I was really, really lucky. And this is another reason, you know, that I'm, I'm very, loyal to my literary agent. Her name is Meg Ruley, and she's with the Jane Rosen Agency in New York. She navigated a career move that's really, really tricky to do, where she landed me with two separate publishers at Grand Central or Warner something. It's now Achette. Um, did my first two contemporary novels. And I also was still publishing the historical romances with Mira Books, which was an imprint of Harlequin. And so she managed to make that work for a while and got the two publishers sort of working in symbiosis until um, Mira wanted to be my sole publisher and made it very much worth my while. And so I still had um, kind of two streams. I had 
contemporary, they were paperback originals still, like a historical romance, but I could see on paper the sales difference. It was almost two to one. You know, I, the, the historical romances, which I loved writing, they were so much fun. Um, the research was just yummy and the, the writing and, and I, you know, I was very comfortable in that genre and I was a fan of that genre, but I also was really creatively and emotionally drawn to the more contemporary, deeper stories of a woman's life. And so I was able to see when the numbers started coming in, you know, the handwriting on the wall was people are drawn to contemporary stories. And then another strategic move that I made in consultation, I brainstormed an idea for not just the next contemporary book, but for a series of books. And I had done really, really loose. They weren't really series. They were more like spinoffs, just another character who, you know, kind of resonated with reading. I would write her story, but I'd never really done a series. And so I came up with this concept. I called it the Lakeshore Chronicles. They're still um, all in print today. And they centered around a certain family who ran a summer camp in the Adirondacks out your way. And, you know, they revolved around a family in that area and, you know, all of their drama and their lives and their loves. And the stories are interwoven. And I think I sketched out maybe the first three or four books in that series. And I believe my agent pitched it to the publisher like that. And they were my first really legit New York Times bestsellers, the Lakeshore Chronicles. They were really, uh, they really landed hard. And those were the ones that gave me my number one bestsellers. And so definitely, it was definitely a strategy. It was very calculated. It makes me sound like really, really cold, but these books are the ones that we need to send to the book talk people because I get these tear stained letters from readers saying, Oh my God, I, I, I want to just be buried with this book. I loved it so much. So there you go. My cold hearted calculating mind has conjured up this really lovely series of um, incredibly emotionally rich books, I guess. And I feel like it's going to come full circle for you because once the book talkers are sick of crying into their <laughs> pillows, I feel like then it's going to be the lusty books and the books that they're going to be fanning themselves saying that these books are uh, are getting them all hot and bothered because uh, certainly after Bridgerton, we're seeing that. So uh, I feel like then they're going to be picking up your other books there as well. Something else that you do so well, Susan, is that you really support other writers and you give them a place platform as much as possible. You know, you are on BookBub and you will read a book and you will sing its praises there. I know I got a ton of new followers on BookBub after you rated my novel there. So can you speak as well to forming relationships with, with other authors and how important that might be? do think it's important. I never regarded other authors as my competition. I like any author who attracts readers because I believe in the principle that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so, and I, there's, it's not an accident that my latest book is the lost and found bookshop about a bookseller in old San Francisco, um, trying to 
to you know make her way through the the labyrinth that is book selling today because I love I mean there's some sort of pleasure that I get and I'm sure everybody does when you recommend the perfect book to the right reader you know just what they're looking for you know what will make them happy and entertain them and so yes absolutely I love discovering other writers I was so happy when I read your book it was like who is this woman and where has she been all my life and how can I share my enthusiasm for her book and so luckily there are platforms now online to do that bookbub and goodreads and I'm sure many many others but it just it, it makes me uh it, it brings me pleasure to recommend a book I like to endorse books that I read by other authors and it's almost always a question I get when I'm giving a book top what are you reading right now and that sort of thing. So I'm, you know, I'm always happy to to share that. I think that it raises, you know, here's my cold hearted business side talking now. I believe it raises your profile within the publishing community because you're probably discovering even after two books that it's like living in a small town. People tend to know each other. Everybody meets each other. And so I think that's probably a way to keep your name relevant. You might end up chatting with an editor and then working with her one day. And so I tend to be as as generous as I can with my time. And also, I'm just an avid, avid reader. I'm all, I've always got a book going. I'm always reading something. And so I started out as a reader and I will, you know, go to my grave as a reader. And one of the pleasures of reading is to recommend other books and to discover new voices. Yeah, I I have to agree with you there. You know, I teach creative writing and that's one of the things I say to my students is read widely and also don't be snobbish in terms of the genres you prepare to read because you often get people who are like, oh, I'm only going to read literary fiction. I don't read romance or I don't read thrillers. And I believe that every single genre has got something to teach us as writers, which is why I try and read across multiple genres because I will learn all kinds of things that I wasn't learning in my own genre in, in reading across the board. And also, you know, the Lost and Found Bookshop, you in your career must have spent countless hours in bookstores, doing your author events and signing books, et cetera, et cetera. And there is no bigger champion for authors than booksellers. They are my favorite people in the whole world. They're just absolutely amazing. So I also feel like that was kind of a tribute to all the booksellers out there who I'm sure you've met along the way. It definitely was. And there are like, uh, in that my fictional bookstore is made up of my favorite elements of all my favorite bookstores that I've visited. And I even made me a cameo appearance in a couple of secret ways in that book. Like there's a, the main character, Natalie, is reading a book called Acts of Light. It, um, it was the last book that her, her mother was reading when she when tragedy occurred and and the bookmark is in a certain spot and that's an actual book that I wrote but like many authors uh, have to face you don't always get to keep your title the title it was acts of light and my publisher published the book as map of the heart so but um you know I, I did that and then the other cameo appearance I had a an author event as a scene in that book with this nice lady author her name was quill and she showed up with with flowers and the, the 
the jar of candy to put on the table and, you know, had her, her hair done and her nails done. And she was very thrilled to be there. And she sits down at her table of books and no one comes. <laughs> I've had that signing so many times. I've had people staying away in droves. <laughs> that, I've had author events where, you know, you get there and you go, okay, nobody's here. I've done my hair and makeup, but at least I can go back to the hotel room and have one night off. And then one <laughs> lone person wanders in because it's raining outside. <laughs> And, and they're not interested in your book, but there they are. They sit in front of you and now you have to do this whole event for this one lone person who you know is not going to buy the book, is not interested. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. We've had, well, Susan, our time is up. It's really flown by. Is there anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Anybody who's kind of in the, in the vortex of writing and rewriting, getting ready to submit, or perhaps they've already had a few of those rejections. Any words of wisdom that you would like to share with them? I think I'll re repeat something that I, I believe I said earlier. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Be patient to yourself. Be kind to yourself and make sure that you show up regularly for your story because that's what's going to get you to the end I, Bianca thank you so much this was such a pleasure I enjoyed meeting you in person so much I'm such a fan of your books and now I got to have this lovely conversation with you so thank you for having me and that's it for today's episode I hope you'll join us for next week's show in the meantime keep at it remember it just takes one yes Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.